Happy Friday, everyone. Devin Nunes coming to you on this Memorial Day Friday. It is my honor this week to have on the former Secretary of the Interior, David Bernhardt. For those of you watching on the live stream, uh, get your questions into the chat. We will be taking questions throughout from those of you in the chat in the chat room if you're on Rumble. And uh, But we'll get right into Secretary David Bernhardt, uh, kind of his history, uh, how he grew up, how he got in politics. Uh, but I got to know Secretary Bernhardt uh, back in the day. He was in the uh, Bush administration fighting the radical environmentalists, working on issues that were near and dear to me, like California water, uh, dealing with the radical environmentalism that has basically destroyed our forests uh, in California. Uh, and I consider him to be one of the best, if not the best, uh, people who knows how to operate in the swamp. And he's written a book called You Report to Me, which really is a book, I think, that all anybody who's interested in government, who uh, who wants to go to work for government, especially in the executive branch. Uh, his book, You Report to Me, is, I think, a, a, a real testament uh, to not only his success over the years of being able to get things done, uh, but also would serve as a good guide for people who are interested in, in government. So there's a lot going on here today, but David, Mr. Secretary, uh, welcome. Well, thanks for having me, Devin. I really appreciate it and I look forward to our conversation. So Dave, I'm just going to call you Dave for this because that's what I normally call you. <laughs> that's um, right. But um, first of all, you got your study. I mean, you were born and raised in Colorado, right? And maybe talk about where you're from and then how you got interested in these kind of environmental issues. Um, and then I know you, and I'm going to probably skip something, but I want to talk about kind of your upbringing uh, and sure. then how you got interested in politics. And then we'll go into what I believe your first stint was. I don't want to get this wrong, but was it in the, was it, I know you're in the George W. Bush, but did you also That's serve right. for George Bush? I served in the George W. Bush administration. I served on the Hill and then in the Bush administration, George W. Bush administration. Okay, okay. I knew, I wasn't sure if you, if you dated back before that, yeah. but, oh, that's right. Cause you started on the Hill. I forgot that's right. that. So we'll, that's right. well, look, instead of me talking, why don't I let you talk and, uh, and tell us about uh, where you grew up, where you're from and how you got in politics. Well, I grew up in a little town in Western Colorado called Rifle. And um, it is a community, a rural community that is surrounded by uh, public lands. And um, what I learned, um, you know, first off, there's nothing better than having access to public lands in terms of being able to fish, to hunt. Um, but I learned at an early age that the decisions that federal land managers make have critical, um, you know, critical impacts uh, to the hopes and the dreams of these these local communities. And in my hometown, my hometown was the the home of the biggest oil shale boom and bust in American history. And um, as a result of that, um, I got to see firsthand just how a change in policy could really affect um, a community. And out of that, that understanding uh, grew a interest in natural resources. I grew up, my father was an extension agent. I, I grew up raising livestock, and um, and as a result of that, um, 
you know, had, had a sense of, I think, a particular work ethic that you only get um, in, a, in, a, in a rural community, uh, feed, feeding cattle and sheep every single day. And that was, that was a great way to, to grow up. And um, it taught me, number one, uh, in Western Colorado, the biggest issues, the biggest issues for every, um, every person that cares about agriculture is water. And, um, and so from an early age, um, I realized water has a profound effect on your community and your hopes and dreams. And so does, uh, at least in these Western states where the vast majority of the state is managed by the federal government, the decisions that the field manager and the local uh, folks make, um, and then on, on, and up, up the process had a huge effect. And that drove me to become interested in both natural resource law and water law and, um, and frankly, uh, policy uh, related to natural resources and the environment. Yeah. So you, uh, so you go to, you go to law school. Nobody will hold that against you that you're a lawyer. (laughs) Very good one, by the way, one of the, one of the good guys. Um, And then you, you went first to work for a Colorado, your, your Colorado representative. That's right. Just, just, just like, you know, um, many of your former staff, um, I, I was in law school and um, started working and going to law school at night for a member of Congress from my home um, area. His name was Scott McKinnis, and he was he was just an incredible person to work for. Uh, number one, he gave, empowered you um, uh, as, a, as a staffer. Uh, number two, there's nothing better really in terms of as a staff person having a chance to work um, for your home community. You know, the people that come to DC, you're fighting for them. It was a great experience. Um, I got out of law school, uh, served a couple more years in uh, the congressional staff, and then went into uh, private practice at a law firm um, that, that had offices in both DC and Colorado. And in that capacity, um, as an associate at a law firm, I ended up working a lot for a gal named Gail Norton. And uh, Gail um, had formerly been the Attorney General of Colorado uh, and um, in, at, at the beginning of the Bush administration in 2001, she was uh, nominated to be the Secretary of the Interior. And when that happened, um, you know, she's packing up her briefcase and her coffee cup and she's like, uh, David, you know, maybe you ought to come to the Department of the Interior with me. And um, I went over. Uh, I thought I'd be there for a year. I ended up staying eight, uh, serving in a whole host of roles um, at the department. And um, as counselor to the secretary, as head of congressional affairs, as deputy secretary, or sorry, as as deputy solicitor and solicitor. And um, during that eight year period and worked on a whole host of issues. And um, and that was a that was the experience that really prepared me for my experience in the Trump administration. Yeah. All right. So then you go back, you got to back to private practice. You That's right. were in government and then you went back uh, outside, uh, still working on these issues. Uh, and then uh, you went to work for President Trump. And I will tell you that um, one of the reasons uh, of, of many that uh, I really admire the work that President Trump did uh, is because, and you'll know this better than anyone, David, is that you know, we have these horrible issues out here in uh, California dealing with the, you know, 
all of the federal lands, especially water issues and the forest issues that I mentioned earlier. Um, and we always get every Republican says, yeah, we're going to, oh yeah, they'll come, they fly into the San Joaquin Valley and they say, we're going to fix all this stuff. We're going to get your water back. But the sad part is, is that actually Republican presidents didn't do it. Um, and a lot of people, you know, sadly, and I realize it was a, it was a must pass bill, but uh, George Bush, the first George Bush actually did some, signed in some devastating legislation right. uh back in the early 90s, which actually drove me into politics, was a signature by George Bush uh, that really screwed my area. And I know politics is politics, and it was a large bill, and 95% of the bill was things that everybody agreed on, but it was the largest water cut in history at a time when I was growing up uh, and had no, uh, was watching fields dry up, uh, and it's something that, um, you know, that you can never, once you once that happens to you, it's basically seared into your mind uh, right. as watching crops die because of the government. And, um, you know, and nobody knew about it. And I think still today, very few people know about it, even though I would crusaded on it for 20 some years in Congress. But just bringing back full circle, President Trump, working with you, are the first ones to ever do a damn thing uh, to try to to try to fix this problem. And you guys got you had some victories. Uh, there's a picture on the screen. Um, that was here in the San Joaquin Valley signing um, additional executive orders that followed on legislation that had been that had been passed. It was the first time that we had received like any even an ounce of water back. But maybe talk about because I know it's in your it's, it's in your book, but talk about what it was like to work for President Trump, because there's so many people that are out there who are the first to, 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 to run off. It's like the rats running off the ship. If, if they can get a new job or get paid. And one of the first things they do is they run out there and say, Oh, I don't like uh, Trump's mean tweets. And uh, uh, yeah, I don't agree with him on things uh, that he says, um, which I find ironic because Trump actually hasn't tweeted in, you know, nearly three years, <laughs> two and a half years. So I don't know what the, the hell they're even talking about. Cause that's what you hear. We have to get somebody that might be electable, but I can't stand his tweets. It's like, hey, moron, never Trump. Uh, you're a moron. He hasn't tweeted. So what are you talking about? True social? Oh, you're not even on true social. So what? what, what is it that you're talking about? Um, and you don't get that. But Dave, you actually, um, you know, a lot like me, you know, you recognize leadership for what it is and know that that number one, what are the qualities of the leader? What are they like to work with? And to get things done, to watch things get done under and, and the, the whole Trump administration, including you, were under tremendous pressure because of all the false accusations of Russia hoaxes, Ukraine impeachment hoaxes, the corruption at DOJ. Uh, but you were there. Uh, you were there for all of that. And you were, you know, I always say you were quiet, you were methodical, and you got shit done uh, working with Trump. And so tell us what it was like to work with him and how you were able to get so much done that so few people even know about today, but it was really your work that helped to make us energy independent, obviously with Trump's leadership, but give us some insights into that. Let's have a, let's have a conversation about it. Well, first off, the, the, the important statement that you made here is that a lot of Republican presidents have said, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and then they get in and they don't. And I worked for one for eight years. I mean, to be very honest with you, you and I both know that you, you and, um, you know, other members of the California delegation expressed real reservations at times and frustration 
with the George W. Bush administration for not moving forward on some of these key issues. Fast forward to President Trump. And you you played a key role in, um, you know, in educating the president on certain issues. For example, um, you know, water in California was something that you um, you educated the president on. And I can tell you that he took um, he took what you, um, you know, told him and, and said, I am going to do something about it. And, um, you know, what was amazing in working with him is he was a president that cared about outcomes and results. He really didn't want to hear a lot about process. He wanted to know, could you hit the target? And, and the, frankly, if you could hit the target, he was probably the easiest guy on the planet to work for. If you couldn't hit the target, well, that's a problem. And, um, uh, you know, if the target was achievable. And, and the truth of the matter is with Trump, uh, my experience with Trump, is he gave clear direction. I had a certain number of goals. He said, here's the goals. Here's what I want you to do. And what would happen, and this is the big difference, Devin, is, you know, in, in, the, Bush, in the Bush administration, we'd be told, hey, let's go do X. And we'd start doing X, you know, we, we'd start doing X. And the next day, there'd be a story in the, Wall, the Washington Post or some major left-wing newspaper. And, and um and you get a call from the White House that say, hey, um, we need to think about this a little longer. And um, and and, um, and then, you, you know, you've taken this agency, you've started to move it, you stop and you wait and you wait and you're trying to figure it out. And it's very hard to lift an agency and move it. With yeah. President Trump, his direction was clear. And then you get a call, you get a same newspaper article and you might get a call and the call would say, hey, looks like you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Yeah. And that consistent leadership on one hand and the willingness to just keep things moving was phenomenal. The other thing he did, and I, this was unbelievable to me, Devin, and I, I talk a lot about this in the book, is uh, when I first met with him to talk about uh, serving as, as acting secretary, uh, as we got to the end of the meeting, he asked me if I had any questions. And I said, I have one. Who do I report to? Thinking, you know, there has to be somebody I report to. And he said, him. And I said, well, how can that, like, no, I really need to know just who I report to to do my job. And as I explained in the book, and, and he said, no, no, it's me. And, and the reality was that was stunning to me because I had worked for two other secretaries in the George W. Bush administration where it could take weeks or months to get a meeting to visit with the president. And during that time, nothing gets done. And so with Trump, with President Trump from day one, you were told, go do X on energy or go do Y on water, get on with it. And then you had, you had consistent support by him to get your job done. And you had, um, you had the ability to contact him to work through issues um, as they arose. And what that meant, Devin, and, and you know this better than anybody because you know our issues, but what that meant fundamentally is in four years under the Trump administration, the Department of the Interior moved faster and was more productive on the Endangered Species Act, on the National Environmental Policy Act, on water issues, on energy, on, all, on better recreational access, 
all because we had consistent leadership on one hand and um, we were told to go get things done. And, and a president who we had a president who wanted an outcome, not for me to come tell him that we had a bunch of process issues. And, and that was tremendously enabling as long as he had a competent person um, leading the organization and working uh, a competent team, T President Trump's leadership allowed you to move mountains in a very efficient way and efficient time. And it's unprecedented as a president. I mean, I, I wish people um, had the experience I had in working with him um, so that they could see, uh, the American people could see just, just yeah. what, um, what a um, difference maker it was having him as president. Well, and I think the difference, the real difference is, David, that you were there to get things done. You knew the things that needed to get done for the country. You were carrying out the president's agenda, which was to make this That's country right. energy independent. Uh, and, and then, and he, unlike many other politicians, uh, including many that actually went to work for him and his administration in different roles, um, you know, who were scared of the media and we'll get back to that, but, you actually not only did you agree with his positions, but I'm but I think you were surprised as I was that you know because every president says we're going to go open Anwar, we're going to drill more oil on, on the Republican right. side, and of course nothing happens. Right, but like he said it and he actually meant it, and he went to you and said get it done, and he came to Congress and said get this done. That's exactly right, and and I think that's a breath of fresh air that that you know he doesn't get credit for, and I think with the issue that you saw with. Um, you know, with many people is they have these great resumes and they run around the swamp there in Washington, D.C. And they they get a couple good stories written about them and said, well, this people are supposed to be very reasonable to go into the administration. And then, of course, they're beholden. They're scared of the fake news. And then those stories slam down whenever you're trying to carry out the agenda. That's, I think, the point that you were that you were making previous right. presidents and even political people that work for. Uh, the Trump administration, um, they would run at the first sign of cover. Like they felt like they were obligated. They had to run outside and talk to the fake news guys. They had to secretly talk to them, uh, you know, late, you know, late at night or in, in the deep, dark corners of the swamp in Washington, D.C. Um, so it would look like leaking all kinds of bad things. So there'd be a series of of, of multiple stories. And with, and, and with President Trump, it's like, oh, if that's the case, because he learned, I think, because of the Russia hoax, you must be doing something right. Um, so, you know, keep doing what you're doing. That I think that's the point that you were making about how the, the fake news media would really drive, you know, many politicians, almost all Republican politicians, until they met President Trump. And then there were also people within the administration who, who weren't used to that and couldn't handle it. Like, oh my God, three fake news stories, like, well, and, you know, they'd see it'd be like anonymous sources say that are close to secretary so-and-so that that everybody thinks that, that nobody this, this won't happen. This will this won't happen. You know, you know the story. And um, uh, and that's you know, that's, I think, really disappointing that you had so many people that with with the type of leadership that you had at the top um, showing what you were able to get done. And it's a testament to your skills and the president's skills. But how pathetic many others were that didn't get stuff done. Well, my, my view is, is precisely that 
the president, I'm sure he enabled everybody um, just like he enabled me. Like I, I wasn't a, a special case at the Department of the Interior. And so it really like if, if you, um, you know, if you were in a situation and given direction, um, you know, he expected you to move forward and do it and uh, and gave you some freedom to do that. And if, if things didn't get done, it's really on them. It's it's on them. And because the reality is you are when you lead an agency like this, uh, the Department of the Interior or anything else um, under the law, you are supervising all functions of that agency. And and that is hard work. It requires some effort. Uh, but but the president enabled people uh, to to make a um, make an effort and have an opportunity to hit the target. And frankly, if you were hitting the targets, um, things were phenomenal. And that's the way they were at the department. And you're so uh, right in that there's just there was a he was discombobulating for D.C. because he wanted to get stuff done. And, you know, I was in a meeting. I had a meeting once at the White House that I talk about in the book where basically several other agencies had decided that they would blame the Department of the Interior uh, for um, their inability to get work done on the border for the border wall. And I told them that I didn't think the issue that they were concerned about was a really big problem. But I went to this meeting. They proceeded to, you know, complain about the department, um, maybe not moving as fast as they wanted. And so I said, look, um, I'll get this project done in 30 days, but I need one thing. I need a Black Hawk helicopter. And that got everybody's attention. And what I decided is that I would personally inspect the boundary um, that and and provide um, my own views on potentially um, a, a withdrawal if if um, if they would give me a helicopter to do it. And by doing that, you know, I took a process that was going to take a long time um, in some people's view, not that long in my view, but I shrunk it down to about 30 days. And, you know, suddenly then a couple other agencies couldn't, you know, they then they had to say, hey, the dead cat is no longer on somebody else's porch. Right. And so they had to figure out, oh, now we'd actually have to be accountable. And in Washington, D.C., people spend a lot of time instead of trying to solve problems, figuring out how that problem ought to be on somebody else's porch. And if we all just got together, um, you know, with the direction of a leader like President Trump and said, look, let's get these problems fixed. Uh, the American people would be in a much, much better shape and it can be done. He just needs to, you know, we just need to have consistent, uh, strong leaders. Yeah. So Dave, I want to, so in your, your book, it really is a, a kind of guideline and principles for um, incoming uh, leaders into the, uh, you know, into, into the swamp. Um what made you des decide to write the book and how would you describe kind of your elevator speech of what's what's in the book? Well, first and foremost, I wanted the American people to understand what it's like in government. I mean, everybody, everybody probably watching and listening to this uh, program knows your story about um, uh, Russia, Russia, Russia. Um, fewer of them probably know the story about your efforts for years uh, pushing back against the bureaucracy uh, on, on water issues. 
And, and what I wanted the American people to see is the way um, the way President Trump was treated, uh, his people were treated in these agencies compared to the way um, folks were treated uh, in different times so that people can begin to see the behavior that is occurring within some, not all, but some of the 2.2 million civil servants. And what, what I lay out in the book is that, you know, really from uh, before, the minute the president was elected, just like with the Russia hoax and all of the, um, you know, things that you have talked about so often, the minute he was elected, there already became stories and efforts to discuss a resistance within the bureaucracy to the president. And, um, and we highlight a whole number of examples um, of experiences political appointees had. And my concern, to be candid with you, is that type of uh, uh, resistance to a particular president, um, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, um, eliminates and frustrates the will of the American people. You know, the American people voted uh, uh, and elected President Trump. And uh, whether the people in Washington wanted him to be the president or not, and I wanted to highlight, number one, that that occurred. And number two, lay out what I believe is necessary to fix some of the challenges um, that that type of behavior creates. And so um, within the book, we lay out um, a whole series of things that the president can do, things that uh, Congress could uh, potentially do. And, and also, I lay out what I think each individual political appointee want, needs to do to be as effective as they can be in the next administration. Because here's my big fear. Whomever the next president is, um, it, you are going to see massive, massive pushback. Because the pushback that uh, we saw under the Trump administration, in my mind, will be viewed largely by entities as a successful effort. And so people that go into the next administration are going to need to be really, really well, well prepared. And we're going to need a leader that has this consistent willingness to move forward, um, knowing that they're going to have to take the heat. And, um, you know, I think President Trump has that ability. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, that you and the president don't get credit for um, that nobody's really talked about, but it is a major plank for President Trump's um, uh, candidacy in this in this uh, in, in this current run for the White House uh, is moving government agencies outside of the swamp. And you actually, I think that was one of your ideas. I know you'll say it right. was the president's ideas, but you actually got that done. Um, and or came close to getting done. I think you got it done, and then of course now they're not funding it or something, right? Right. But right. but that overall concept of put, getting people out of the swamp to get go live with the real people. Like if you want to be running a national park, you know maybe you ought to be in a state where the national national park actually is, and so you understand the the different needs in say the western states. Um. So why don't you kind of walk us through that process? Because I think there's many people who are saying that there's a lot of bureaucracies um, that need to get the hell out of Washington, D.C. because they've been 
you know, they've been completely corrupted, i.e. the Department of Justice and the FBI. Well, you know, what's really interesting. Um, we, we made a big effort to to move um, our some of our headquarters functions for an agency called the Bureau of Land Management West. And the first thing that is important to recognize is one of the reasons we did that is because it's very was very hard to actually get our best people, our best managers to want to come to Washington, D.C. to work, which, you know, uh, says says everything on one hand, um, their commutes would be longer. Um, the cost of their housing would be a lot more. And um, the truth of the matter is it was attractive uh, for some to, to live in the West, particularly those um, individuals that were engaged in interior related matters, perhaps. But I fundamentally believe that to the extent, and particularly with technology today, that to the extent that folks can be closer to the issues that they um, oversee and manage, uh, closer to the um, problems that the American people face and, um, and, and closer to um, seeing the ramifications of their decision, the more informed and wiser those decisions are going to be. And, you know, there is absolutely no reason. Um, right now we have buildings in D.C. that have sat virtually empty for three years because people are now only going back one and two day, two days per pay period. Um, there is absolutely no justification for saying the federal footprint in DC couldn't be a little smaller and um, we could put more people in the field closer to the problems that America faces and get them done. And we, we did some of that in interior and there's, um, there's a lot more that could be done. And I hope that future, um, administrations really give that a lot of consideration. And we, uh, we lay out some of the benefits in the book. Yeah, it's one of the things that, uh, that the pandemic uh, was useful for was it showed that, that even though people were coming to work in Washington, D.C., the fact that they weren't going to work any longer didn't really matter. <laughs> they weren't doing anything anyway. Um, and I think that became abundantly, abundantly clear. Um, I want to switch uh, topics, Dave. Um, you bet. And, and talk about because we got a few questions in the chat um, about the national parks and uh, in particular, what is your favorite national park? Well, I the first national park that I went to probably had the biggest impact to, on me personally. It's a very small park. It was Mesa Verde in um, in southern Colorado. And, you know, I was an elementary school kid. Uh, I went there on a trip. And, um, you know, they, they put us in a, the park service uh, had a tour at that time. They, they don't, I think allow access to this anymore, but we actually went into a Kiva and they closed the, the Kiva and it was dark and you just sat there and it inspired me to, to want to study, um, the history of these people that had lived in this, um, incredible, um, cliff dwelling. It, it was so inspiring. And, um, you know, that experience has stuck with me. But, um, you know, if my wife was here, I'd say it's Rocky Mountain National Park because uh, Jenna and I were married right outside of Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, and, and all, you know, the parks, um, the parks are great inspiration uh, for uh, Americans and, uh, and wonderful places to be. Well, I remember one of the things, I think it shocked the hell out of everyone. I don't know if you put this in your book or not, but it, it, uh, it should have been in there. 
um, you came out to California several times, but um, I remember secretaries from other administrations, both Republican and Democrat, uh, that would come out to the San Joaquin Valley, which is basically the epicenter of all the federal lands issues. You know, we right right, right outside Yosemite National Park, uh, Sequoia Kings Canyon National Park. Uh, obviously, all the federal lands, the timber in, uh, issues, the oil issues, um, the water issues. Um, we're kind of in the middle of all of that. But I mean, every single time someone would fly in from a cabinet level, even the deputy level and the deputy's deputy level, they'd fly into here, um, have a quick meeting and photo op with me and, and other surrounding members of Congress and other uh, other agencies. Um, and then they'd fly right out. Um, or maybe they would you know, they'd fly in, do a meeting uh, with the members of Congress and then go to Yosemite National Park, yep. do a photo op and get the hell out. But uh, what you would do when you would come out, you actually would go and stop at every single office, exactly. which I have to believe that. And you'd spend a day there. <laughs> I remember one time I like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I worked in the I can't remember what office. So I was there the whole day. I'm like, really? I mean, that had to shock the living hell out of the people that worked at the Department of Interior to have the secretary who's never even been to these offices to not only have you go to the office, but not just do a photo op, but actually talk to the people, sit in there and see where they work and how they do it. I mean, it's a testament. It's brilliant. Um, and we're very thankful that you did it. Well, you're you're absolutely right. Um, that, that that probably was a um, a field office at the Bureau of Reclamation, and uh, uh, that we had that visit at, um, you know, right after that. And um, the the truth of the matter is, um, there's no better way to convey your vision than looking people in the eye and explaining to them. There's also a, a real reaction to them if you'll take the time to come in and explain what you're doing, why and why you appreciate what they're doing. I mean, there's a lot of great folks working on these issues, a lot of great folks working uh, to make America better. And, you know, sometimes it helps for them to understand that you, um, you know, you know, the issues, you care about the issues, um, and that you uh, appreciate what they do. I had, um, you know, I had a lot of great examples where, um, you know, I would meet with a uh, staffer uh, or a team member or a supervisor and and they would, you know, they would find out that I had actually read their document. I'd sit there and explain, hey, I have a question on page 230. And they'd like, you know, they would be surprised because um, they would often think that, you know, people aren't um, aren't giving their work that level of attention and review. And then, you know, the converse of that is sometimes you'd have some tough questions for them. And, and that's good. That's good for, um, for them to understand that their work is important and for them to understand that it needs to be held at a high standard. Yeah. And, and also I think it proves your point too, about people that are in Washington, DC, uh, lose touch with reality. And, and a lot of the people that are doing these jobs working for the federal government, um, out in the hinterlands uh, where these people don't go um, are people who are quite frustrated because they, they, at the end of the day, they have really important work to do, um, especially at the Department of Interior, because not just everybody knows the national parks um, and there's obviously issues with those, but those people love those jobs and they're 
they're they're very knowledgeable about about the parks that they work at but more importantly a lot of the work they have to do is to stop communities from flooding make sure communities don't run out of water uh, make right. sure that millions of acres of farm ground can be farmed um and i know and on the, on the other side of things with the a lot of the federal lands with the timber issues and these people are some of the most knowledgeable people they don't want to ever move to Washington D.C. That's right. They they know that the problems that, that that are there and that need to be solved, but nobody will listen to them. And I think that's your point of, of really right. elevating these people that are that are experts, that our communities really do rely on having a good, solid, institutional foundation of people know what the hell they're doing, so that we don't get flooded and, or that's, our communities don't burn down. That that's right. You know, we have a lot of people that are critical to our daily operations that we don't even, um, you know, we don't lionize, we don't think about, but, you know, water not being delivered or, um, you know, roads not working. Those are, those are pretty big issues at the end of the day. And, um, and, and a lot of good people are doing that and they want, they want solutions. They're just as frustrated as the people that live in these communities. Um, and, and they want to help get there. And so, the, the, the reality is there's there is and this is my the point of my book that fundamentally with good strong leadership consistent direction and a willingness to get things done our country has boundless opportunity it's just everybody needs to stay in their right lane to get it done yeah well I want to cover uh, two more topics uh, involving that are very important uh, one was a recent Supreme Court decision here in the last few days, uh, and then also an upcoming case that you're very knowledgeable on, because the people that listen to my podcast, Dave, are up to speed, smart people, not because they're listening to me, but they know that I have good guests on. Um, and uh, this is uh, probably not on their radar. Um, and I want to get it on. I want to get it to them. And also, um, we I promise we'll get to your questions uh, at the end. So if you're on the if you're on Rumble, uh, put your question in the chat uh, or go to True Social and put your question on um, on the post that I put up. Uh, and we'll get to those questions here in just a few minutes. Uh, but Dave, first of all, the uh, first case, big decision out of Supreme Court yesterday uh, or two days ago, I guess. Um, let's talk about uh, what the Supreme Court did uh, as it relates to wetlands. Well, this uh, is a great property. this is a great issue in the, and a great example of, you know, Congress passes a law and for for decades, um, the uh, administrative agency, in this case, the Environmental Protection uh, Administration continue agency continues to um, push definitions uh, and ideas about what constitutes the waters of the United States um, and how far the waters of the United States go um, over time, you know, at one point it was essentially basically anywhere a migratory bird went, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and they, they worked uh, through um, failed decision after failed decision trying to come up uh, with an answer. And just just this week, you know, the, the Supreme Court finally said, hey, enough. Um, here, here's what it actually means. Uh, we're we're and what they said, I mean, here's the shocking thing, is that um, is that waters of the United States means it's navigable waters and those waters that are, you know, connected to those waters that are obvious. And, and it's probably what any 
uh, anyone in America would think uh, would be a logical definition. And it has a huge effect because it affects the potentially the jurisdictional scope of these agencies and what they've pushed on farmers, on home builders, on a whole host of folks uh, that was probably outside the bounds of of what was appropriate in Congress. And and that is that is a big, big deal because that is the Supreme Court basically beginning to say enough to some of these outlandish um, interpretations by agencies. And it's a very significant development. I can assure you that not only will it affect uh, things in this particular uh, space with EPA, but decisions like this have the potential to tell agencies we don't have the luxury of taking um, law and trying to stretch it like a rubber band until it breaks. And so this is a huge decision uh, for agriculture, a huge decision for um, preserving the authority of states and local governments uh, to, to manage their own affairs. But on top of that, it's a huge decision to all of the, the federal agencies of, hey, watch what you're doing, dot your I's, cross your T's, and be thoughtful as you try and stretch these authorities in inappropriate ways. Well, I will tell you that um, for those of you listening on audio, um, we have on the screen that this was a, a, a nine, uh, all nine justices ruled in favor, which is, I think, very unusual. Then, of course, you had typical politicians. This, this, the Democratic leader in the Senate uh, <laughs> runs out and says it's the MAGA Supreme Court that did it after the nine justices ruled. We have it up on the screen from uh, some of our people on True Social. But um, it is a little bit surprising, Dave, that the Supreme Court did rule nine zero in this. Um, what are well, we they... chalk that up to? Well, I, I think, I mean, when you look at the nine zero, what you really see is that um, some of the um, more liberal members of the court would have um, said that the uh, agency overreached in this particular um, case, which was a horrific case about um, a piece of property in, in Idaho that had gone up to the Supreme Court once and had been in a, in a, in a jurisdictional fight for 16 years. Uh, these people had been treated horribly by the agency. And even there, the, 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 all of the um, justices could find a reason uh, that the agency had overreached. But the majority opinion here is really a, a majority of five, and it makes very clear what these waters are. And so everybody got to the same result. Um, they got there in slightly different ways. And, um, and, and, and that just shows just how extraordinarily um, significant the facts uh, of this case were. And, um, and, see, and see, folks, there's, it, there is hope. This takes 16 years. You just have to keep <laughs> at it. So those of you, we have so many questions in the chat, Dave, about, of course, it's, you know, what Congress is doing and the subpoenas and what, you know, uh, a lot of the questions on nothing's getting done. Um, but um, I did not realize this went on for 16 years. Um, it took a long time for justice to be served um, and hopefully we won't have to wait that long. But the second case that I want to talk about um, is one uh, that's upcoming. Um, and this is and, and to be honest, I don't this has been around for a long time. It deals with Chevron, but I'm going to let you um, explain uh, this. It, it's going to be heard later this year, I believe. 
uh, right, as it as it deals with people who uh, government agencies and federal regulators. That's right. This is a this is a case where um, uh, basically the Department of Commerce decided um, out of whole cloth that they could, um, you know, that there were some provisions in certain instances um, they could ask that a person be placed on a fishing vessel to monitor. Um, and then there were certain ones where you could even place a fishing person on a vessel and have some of the costs paid by the, the fisher, the fishermen. Um, but uh, in this case, what they did is they basically just out of whole cloth, irrespective of these other provisions in the statute, decided that they could, um, the Commerce Department could say, number one, an observer needs to be on this boat. And the the cost of it was very high, up to 20% for some of the, um, you know, some of the uh, fishing folks. And so it's an extraordinary act of, of the regulators just coming up, the Department of Commerce coming up with a, um, a burden that they would impose on the, the public here, um, the folks that, that needed to, to be out there fishing, and they would do it without any direction from Congress. And so the question in front of the court is, um, does, uh, does the Chevron doctrine, which, which basically defers to an agency's interpretation where there's ambiguity, does the, can that be stretched to even where there's silence imposing this, this tax on somebody? And I think that the court is, is likely to be, find that very problematic, but we'll see. Um, but one of the things that we'll do um, if, if they do go the direction of, of finding that troubling is it will be, you know, another major, major uh, decision um, saying, hey, where there's ambiguity, we need to be really, really thoughtful. So practically speaking here, this is going to be heard when and then when would we get the decision? So I would think that practically there'd be a decision probably about this time next year. Okay. And how does it impact, like, what's the best example in like our average daily lives um, if they do strike down this, this, this overreach of the federal government? What are some quick uh, applications that you can see that this would impact? If well, the best example would be you can't, you can't make up a tax that takes somebody's income um, right, right off the bat without Congress having said, do that. You know, these, these, these commercial fishermen were, you know, this was a very costly thing to do to their business without any, anyone that was elected making the decision. It's, it's absolutely a phenomenal story of um, an agency taking the choice, um, you know, using silence to create a tax and burden on the American people that is just unbelievable. Um, so I want to get, as I promised, we're going to get to just lightning round here on questions. I promise. So if you got to get it in now, uh, but Dave, we've got several questions as it relates to how did we get from energy independent under President Trump and, and your administration you worked with? like so quickly to just turn around and not be energy independent and what, and I guess, what do we have to do to, to get back there? 
Well, um, number one, I think the reality is, you know, for good or bad, um, President Biden was very clear about his energy policy. I mean, he, he you know, President Trump um, was in a debate, I think, in uh, in Pennsylvania and laid out that, you know, look, uh, this president, you know, if, if, if President Biden, if this candidate Biden becomes president, he's going to do great things uh, that damage uh uh, oil and gas and, and yeah. energy. Gas and would be, remember they, remember they made fun of President Trump when they said, when President Trump said, gas is going to be five, six, seven, <laughs> even eight, $8. And, uh, and the fake news, oh, what an idiot. Ha ha, $8. Ha ha. And then of course it hit $8 in parts of California. That, that, that's exactly right. And, uh, the, the, the truth is that from day one, this administration has been hostile uh, to traditional forms of energy, they've decided that the you know energy workers in America are best not acting. It's better to support energy workers in Venezuela and um, and you know other places. It's it's absolutely uh, an amazing policy position. Now they've had to because of the economy, um, they've had to begin to you know change their narrative, uh, but not their not their action. As a matter of fact, I think that I, I was going to um, develop this fact in, a, 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 in an article because actually the Democratic Congress required lease sales to begin to take place because they were so frustrated with um, the Biden administration's policy. And I think that is literally the first time in like five or six decades that the um, leadership, you know, when, when the majority of the president's party was in place, they actually overrode the president's energy policy. And um, they that just shows how frustrated not only um, you know, are the American people, but even some key uh, Democrats in, in the in the Congress. Yeah. Okay. So the next question is and is it's I think more tongue in cheek, but how many bureaucrats need to be fired? Um, I think that gets kind of your question of of talking about moving, you know, moving these agencies, how practical is it that to limit that the growth of the agencies in Washington and pushing people out to the field? Yeah, my my real view is that um, one of the best things that can be done is that po po policymakers can put the burden of responsibility and decisions on their own shoulders. They need to not be afraid to hold people accountable. I don't think a lot of people need to. I I, I think that that if you set clear accountability, we reformed the civil service to allow um, bad actors to be um, held accountable, you would see dramatic improvement quickly within the United States government. All right, this is actually the final question, unless you get it in really fast, uh, but uh, this is actually a really good one, uh, Dave. Um, how, how do you respond to the need to have all these radical uh, restrictions like we see, have seen in California on energy and thus making it harder economically for people to make a living. Uh, because if we don't, the world is gonna end because of, of global warming. Um, so it's kind of a broad or kind of a broad global warming pick, uh, question for you. Um, but there's just so much um, hysteria out there with this that, that just doesn't make sense. And people are really being hurt by it. Well, look, you can believe um, the climate is changing and you can believe that man contributes to that. 
Um, and, and you still have to look at the actual facts. And what you're going to find is when you look at those facts, even, even with that understanding, we're not in a situation where the world is going to end in a short period of time. What we are is in a, in a situation where um, fossil fuels, traditional sources of energy are going to play a key role throughout the world for a very, very long time. And what I believe we should do is let the market um, do the best, um, you know, be the entity that decides what are the best um, outcomes, because ultimately the best products, the most efficient products uh, will become the products that people want to use um, through, um, through the realities of supply and demand. You can't artificially create markets. You can't artificially create uh, demand. Um, and in and, and doing that, all you're doing is making energy more expensive for everyone. And that is completely counterproductive. Moreover, mm -hmm. um, energy developed in America is developed with the most stringent regulations. It's the cleanest. We need to be thoughtful about that. So if somebody got one in right under the wire, Dave, uh, and they want to know how does this relate to like the higher energy costs? And do you have any concerns about the U.S. food supply? Because um, we're seeing a lot of these strange things happen that I think Tucker Carlson had reported a lot on. Um, about attacks on the grid, attacks on the specifically food and fertilizer production. But all of this stuff is intertwined uh, because people don't realize that you have to have fossil fuels and energy in order to uh, in order to support um, the huge logistical tail that involves the U.S. food supply. So what are your concerns about the U.S. food supply moving forward? Well, number one, I think we need to make sure that we have plentiful opportunities to develop our natural resources across the board. They all affect food costs, water costs, energy costs, but energy is a huge driver for food costs. And, and here's a big surprise today. Everybody's surprised that the inflation number looks a little high. Uh, we have a challenge and part of it is we've decided to make things artificially more expensive for people. And that is nuts. Yeah. Well, and I can speak to it from you know, California when you make water so expensive uh, and make costs go up so high. Um, huge amount of agriculture has just went right across the border uh, into Mexico, down into South America. Uh, and these are jobs that where we could have an abundant American made uh, food supply that we that we no longer have. So you've been listening to Secretary David Bernhardt. His book is You Report to Me. He was the Secretary of Interior uh, under President Trump. Dave, thanks a lot for, for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Devin. This is Devin Nunes, and we will catch you next time. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Mm -hmm.